Okay, I'm sure we're recording now, so it's uh, it's ready to go. Well, I've got you back again. Somehow I've managed to convince you to come back for more, so that's always a good thing. Yeah. How's it going, by the way? How are you? Still coping with lockdown? Yes, I'm coping quite well, I guess. I just, as I mentioned, I, I've been moving to a new flat, got, um, got myself used to this new environment, and now I'm ready to do other stuff mm-hmm. okay all right uh, but you'd lived in the other place for quite some time so this is a real sort of shift of address isn't it so you've got also like a funky postcode now <laughs> yeah i've changed my postcode it's not one two it's now one zero mm-hmm. so um yeah but i've been living here act- actually in the and the building adjoining to this one for half a year since I have been moving out, uh, since I had moved out from the old flat, which was a shared flat, you know, students' flat for people living, sharing one bathroom, and so on. So I thought it was ready to move on and find myself a place for my own to, to be a wow. bit more isolated. My God. Okay. I thought you'd be like a, a per- perpetual student style person, you know, li- living with others and so on all your life. But uh, Okay. And, you know, I have had enough flatmates. So uh, like, I think it was 20 people I've been living with in the last 10 years. So I thought I've seen enough of the world because there have been Koreans and Armenians and a lot of people from other, mm-hmm. other countries. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, as an experience, do you think it's important that people sort of get used to you know, sharing, you know, just from the perspective of, uh, I suppose, self-development, but also awareness and, um, I guess, learning to be a bit patient as well and seeing how other people live. Do you think it's a good life experience? You should, you should, people yes. should generally try. Yes, definitely. I mean, I was joking now when I said I got to know the whole world, but in part, it's true that through living with people from different countries, you get to new, get to know new perspectives, new ways of seeing things, of perceiving, in fact, life. And and yeah, the Korean uh, woman had totally different new things um, to, to talk about and all these things are uh, very enriching on a personal level mm. and yes I think this I mean it's, it's always been English the first the language the common denominator mm. um, until until some of uh, the foreigner who didn't speak foreigners who didn't speak German in the first place started to learn uh, German, which was also a nice thing to see how they developed their, how they got integrated into uh, German society and culture through language, how you could uh, assist them with in this task. All this is very enriching. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I also think it's an important experience uh, to have if you're considering sort of moving in with a, you know, a special person, you know, um, because you if you're fixed in your ways, it's difficult to adapt and, you know, that mm. kind of thing. So it's it's probably a good experience to, to mm. know that. You know, yes, it surely makes you more flexible. Also, you don't develop strange habits, you're more open to new things, you are more tolerant, 
because you have to be tolerant when you have uh, one bathroom to share with others. You have to uh, coordinate things. And um, yes, all these things make you more flexible, more adaptable to other environments, which is, I think, definitely a positive mm. uh, thing. I don't know if you have ever experienced living in shared flats while you were in Italy or while you were in, in England. No, not in the same way that you have at all. Um, with one individual, yes, but otherwise not. And um, I think this is an experience that is um, important to have at least up to a certain age. Um, I mm. think I think after that it becomes more difficult. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I, I can only imagine this to be the case because, like I say, I haven't done it. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I'm only basing this uh, assumption on the opinions of others. So, yeah. Oh, at a certain time in life, you want to move on, as I did now. Have your own space. Maybe think about something like creating a family at some point, which you should. Well, in, in a four four people shared flat, it's kind of hard. But um, yes, it was a good experience for for these last ten years. Mm, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so basically today it's just to talk about some you know, issues which are you know, either current affairs, uh, but with a sort of view to uh, a longer term application uh, with regards to uh, the principles that we will discuss. Um, but the, the, the first one I want to say is not necessarily new because um, the, the decision to, for example, award Qatar the World Cup was taken a number of years ago um, by, by a group of people, mostly men, I think, um, of whom a large number have been arrested for corruption. However, <laughs> some, somehow um, the decision remains and despite uh, the processes involved in making the selection, despite the fact that the World Cup in 2022 has moved to the winter. Um, the fact that over 6,500 migrant workers have died in the process of building stadia in Qatar. Is it not a surprise that this, you know, charade or this, this craziness hasn't been brought to an end? Yes. Uh... <laughs> Well, I think there are many, many interests involved in this, many um, economic interests, especially. And since this decision has been taken 10 years ago, I think it was in, in 2010, I just read one article when you introduced the topic. And uh, all the construction work that has been done so far, all this uh, has had a very big impact and I guess was of a big importance to the Qatari uh, Economy, so I think it's it's clear uh, why uh, even with these news that have come to light now, something like this is hard to stop, right? It's uh, hard to turn back. So many, not to talk about all the, yeah, the advertising um, part and the commercial part involved regarding FIFA and how um, this World Cup is planned, scheduled and cannot probably cannot be changed to another uh, time and space. So I think so things like this will not, unfortunately, uh, will not change 
much mm. in the in the short run at least. I mean, I do remember reading a few years ago an article, and I was horrified at the time that over a thousand migrant workers mm. died. Yeah. So I mean, <clears throat> you know, we've since seen uh, the death of uh, an, an additional five thousand. So it makes you think, really, in the intervening period, exactly how serious, you know, was FIFA with mm. its monitoring of the processes that are, you know, currently mm. at use in in Qatar. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, you know, who who has a responsibility for this? You know, it's it's terrible. Yeah, I've just I've just seen mentioned in this article from the Guardian that I just read. That FIFA just said something like this thing that uh, they were supposed to say or expected to say something like they are um, protecting or seeing after workers' rights as, as much as they can and so on. But this is just, you know, I think it's just rubbish talk. Uh, they have just um, yeah, attributed the, the work all the workload, all the construction things and so on to a country that is run in a certain way, that has a certain standard of labor, laborers' rights uh, or not, and, and human rights in general, and Qatar. Uh, yes, uh, in fact, I also remember having read about this, but a couple of years ago, as you probably have done too. So it's good to have the Guardian and journalists uh, looking deeper and making a big um, analysis about this. Because otherwise, you, it would just not appear in, in, in your perception, right? Mm. So, um, what I, I still ha I did, couldn't gather from this article what the major causes of, of deaths uh, might have been. Um, if they were really on the construction side, like people falling from big, uh, not um, from big construction sites that were not meeting the standards that you would uh, see here in Germany uh, in terms of, you know, protection, clothes and so on. Uh, or if it was also some the stress involved. I read that there was heat stress for a lot of uh, workers, um, probably work overload because they get the chance from they come from the Philippines. They come from uh, a lot of or from Kenya. I think a lot of workers came so they get the chance to work for a wage that in their eyes is quite high, but they, uh, you know, they exploit themselves working 12 hours a day, maybe. I imagine it like this and then come home and suffer heart problems and so on. So I don't know if you have any uh, additional information about the, you know, about the major causes of deaths, if you made any. Well, I mean, well, this is a part of the problem because they are sketchy. The the in, in the main, it seems as though the the deaths that have been recorded directly of those people engaged in um, infrastructure building for the World Cup, uh, it's come down as heart-related issues, uh, natural causes, and it doesn't seem that, that there is a, a particular interest to categorise their deaths correctly. Um, and, and also, apparently, the, the labor ministries for the countries from where these workers originate, uh, in some cases, they also don't have the facilities to record these deaths. So, therefore, it's difficult for um, ambassadors, perhaps, to demand explanations because they themselves have no ability to record these deaths properly. So this is also a part of um, what is what makes it such a horrible story is that these people are essentially being exploited. When they arrive, uh, 
their passports are taken away. So they mm-hmm. cannot even escape. So they have to sleep in these in conditions which are perhaps not the best, uh, which may indeed also uh, play a role in uh, their deaths because you know, it's simply not sustainable. Um, and uh, yeah, there's nothing they can do. And you know, if they die, they're not paid. The families perhaps are sent a, a nominal fee, and and that's basically it. And you think, you know, this for people to say that the slave trade came to an end at a certain period of time is you know, mm. perhaps a, a fallacy because uh, you've also got the cocoa growing plantations in Africa where you know they are also tantamount to slavery um, mm. and you know unfortunately you have uh, people such as ourselves benefiting directly or indirectly by the you know the sweat blood and tears of these poor people mm. It somehow relates to what we've been talking about in our last talk to the structural uh, injustice that is uh, that governs the worldwide economy, right? So mm. the new form of slavery uh, that is in place uh, that you, I, and I think the term is quite right because this self-exploitation mechanisms that uh, that you can see and that I'm sure also psychologically have had a big um, causality in, in these deaths, right? Because I remember having read, for instance, in a couple a couple of years ago when I read about this, that uh, migrant workers, when coming to uh, Qatar, for instance, uh, yes, their their passports are sacked, and um, as far as I remember, that when when their working contract is over and they are not, they do not leave the country within. A week or two, they get imprisoned and so on. So they are on, under this continuous stress existence-wise, and at the same time, probably have a lot of pressure from their homes, from their families, because the money is important, the money that they pass over. So I think it's quite fair to say this is a new form of of slavery. And regarding the thing that we all profit from it, this is, I think, a, a really important topic because I have not. Uh, I, I decided to not follow soccer as I did before. I just lost interest uh, because of these structures, because capital, capitalism and these um, these really brutal dynamics have become more and more part of the the soccer circus, as, as we, if we call it like this. I mean, the fact that the uh, that the World Cup takes place in winter. Uh, is in Novum, and it's just due to uh, due to the fact that there's some commercial interest, some, as you hinted, at corruption uh, uh, mechanisms involved. So I think I don't know. I I'm not I'm not interested in following the World Cup in 2022 to think about soccer players who earn all this money, who have this image, who are. Mm, yes, who come across or who are import, important uh, persons, personalities for a lot of fans and followers and young people that they are just either ignorant or negligent of the fact what's happening happening there is, I think, something that we should not be um, supporting, right? Well, this is the question, isn't it? Because um, you know, on the other hand, 
just quickly to not rebuff what you said, because I think in the main what you said there is absolutely correct. But you know, there are instances where you have footballers who, you know, they put their heads above the parapets, don't they? So you've got somebody like Marcus Rashford or Juan Mata mm. who have, you know, introduced uh, charities to help you know, people. Uh, you've also got players such as, I think, Sajo Mane, who's Senegalese, if I'm not mistaken, um, who's done a lot for his hometown. Um, you know, with the, you know, obviously, he's a very wealthy young man, but on top of that, he's, you know, he wants to give back. If you also think back to, um, who was the, the striker, the Liberian, who played for AC Milan? He, he then went on to become uh, president, I think, uh, of. <laughs> of Liberia. Um, oh, yeah. Mm. I forgot uh, the name. Yeah, oh, but name. I'm not sure if it's from Liberia, uh, Liberia or Nigeria. Uh, I thought it was Liberia. Okay. Um, but I mean, we'll, we'll stand corrected, I guess. Um, but you know, there is a string of, I think uh, Didier Drogba as well uh, has done quite mm. a lot. I mean, there are yes. probably hundreds of uh, footballers who have given something back. And I hope that they will you know, continue to do so. Megan Rapinoe, for example, um, is also very, very outspoken. And she also, I believe, contributes to Juan Mata's charity. Um, yes, yeah. but you know, I know uh, the the direction you uh, you're taking. This is totally. Um, uh, I mean, I can understand, or it's clear that there are soccer players who who are aware of some degree of injustice and who like Drogba, I think, and many African players who come from the slums in Africa who know how this uh, how this life looks, right? So they are are aware of this and support their their own home uh, towns and so, something that is quite human. The thing is that uh, I'm not sure if many soccer players, or I would say most of them, are not aware that they um, participate by by all these commercialized structures in in structural problems, or that they deepen these structural problems, and that that giving. Um, something back is of course a uh, uh, act of big humanity but I think that awareness should I think it goes it should go so far that we should have some uh, sports let's like really characters you know people as in the as we still had in the 70s 80s 90s people who would uh, even not uh, he would not refrain from from saying their stand from saying what they think also in terms of politics and so on and in this case someone who would step back and say i'm not going to participate in 2020s uh, world cup because of what is happening there because mm. of all the corruption stuff and so on i would wish for soccer players to come up with uh, some a strong message like this yeah, I, I have to say, with regards to this, I mean, what I did want to then go on to, to say was that I'm you know, very strongly considering not watching any of the games in the Qatar World Cup. And you know, it's not that, <coughs> excuse me, Zach as an individual person will have any particularly large uh, influence on this. But I have a feeling that there will be lots and lots of other people uh, who also choose not to uh, watch the games uh, for this or perhaps for other reasons. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, if we've always heard these FIFA representatives or UEFA representatives talk about the fans, the fans, the fans, but, you know, I, I don't see why they don't ask the fans um, mm -hmm. any of the questions with regards to their management style. 
Yeah. Is it, who who has ever had the ability to to, to question, for example, Seth Blatter um, or Michel Platini um, or, or even the, you know, the, the current uh, incumbent who you know, in, is also somebody who you know just sort of flies above. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and outside of the reality in which most of us exist, and you know, where is their responsibility? Where is the access of fans to these people, whom, mm-hmm. uh, in whose name they claim to run the game? You know, I don't see it. So I, I really hope there is some kind of a movement uh, with regards regards to boycotting the games. I, I can't mm-hmm. see I can't see professional players doing it because in many cases they are contractually obliged. Uh, to participate, yes. you know? this is the thing. Yes, this is a major problem I see in, the, in today's world of soccer, professional soccer, that they bind themselves for economic in- interests. One must uh, say, right? Look at what has been revealed about uh, Lionel Messi's contract with Barcelona. How much, uh, how much money he gets, and how many people must be involved in this, right? All his counselors and people who who take something from the uh, from all this mm-hmm. so i think they buy i as a professional soccer player if i had ever become one i would have chosen now at least i say it from my perspective now to bind myself or not uh like just for a limited time not giving away my rights as uh as to you know my image and selling uh, <clears throat> my image and advertising and so on because this this has shaped soccer players to become yeah like you know like these dull figures that are now that's why i talked about the lack of character Talk, think about people like cruyff in the in the 70s and so on who still smoked uh, well <laughs> Probably not so good for his development, but he was still doing greatly. So, but these kind of characters are not existent anymore in today's soccer, or hardly existent. Don't you agree? To a to an extent, yeah. I mean, because you, on the other hand, you have characters like Zlatan, who I think everybody (laughs) everybody would accept that he's a character, and yet uh, Zlatan Zlatan came out and was critical of LeBron James, who I thought. I have to say, and I still think uh, LeBron James uses his platform as uh, as one of the best ever, uh, you know, basketball players uh, in the history of the game. Um, and when he talks about Black Lives Matter, with the passion in which he talks about it, and also the work that he does in local communities, mm. uh, you know, to have these kids represented, to give them an opportunity, uh, for them to have somebody like Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, turn around and be critical of that person. Uh, and mm. saying professional sports people should not engage in politics or political debate mm. publicly. Um, I, I find that, yeah, uh, yeah, disagreeable. Unlucky, unlucky, yes, to say, because I also like him as a character who says, generally says what he thinks, right? Maybe he says uh, this with regards to politics because this is a realm he doesn't know a lot about, so he can't be so authentic about it. But, but he, uh, he played in the USA, as in him. How can he? Okay, I know you're right. You're going to say yeah, but footballers live in a bubble. But you know, he lived in the USA. As in, I'm, come on, how can somebody not have heard uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement? 
Yeah, as in, yeah and if, I mean, if you if you say so, like he apparently said that you're not supposed to be involved in any politic talks. Uh, this is something that goes uh, way beyond politics. This is something about humanity, you know, what happened in the U United States, right? Black Lives Matter and so on. To stand up for black uh, black people's rights is something that's got nothing to do with standing, uh, taking a standpoint in, in some other political issues. This is mm. a clear message of humanity. And I think this is what lacks in uh, in general uh, lacks in, in today's professional sports world let's call it let's let's look also not only at soccer but the thing is uh, to come back to the structural problem is that regardless of whether there are people like lebron james or some soccer players who do this and this this is just um how do you say it's just a to be honest it's a minor thing it's like uh mm, the action of some a person who has through the structures and through maybe also through his effort reached a certain wealth and then can, is, is capable of distributing it but to 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 turn the structures into more more democratic and more respectful of of human rights and all these things requires some more right it requires mm. some yeah, some also you know they have they have to i think soccer players are generally not really um, aware of the the problems of uh, that that their fans and the major population worldwide faces so face so uh, also intellectual uh interest should be there to to understand structures like fifa and so on and um, yeah i hope i hope this can be brought about and I think the problem is uh, with structures like FIFA, the lack of uh, communication the, uh, with the basis, with the fans and so on, uh, the lack of uh, democratic struct structures within these big institutions. And this is something that's not only uh, is valid for, for sports world, but generally for institutions, of course, only that in uh, institutions it manifests in structures that are, you know, prone to to uh, to corruption, as has been the case with FIFA, Blatter and Platini, and all these people. Mm, yeah, um, but as you mentioned, um, human rights, then perhaps we can we can move on to the next subject. But I, I hope that we will be able to revisit this this football uh, element of, of things in many ways because um, you yeah. know, it is it is a sport which is loved around the world. Uh, yes. it's, it's, mm. it's a unifying fact, or it can be a unifying element if used positively. You're and right, you're right, you're right. I, I, you know about my passion for the sport and uh, how I love, I still love seeing some compilations as I, uh, I do sometimes. And I, I see this uh, strong potential, the emotions involved just the importance it has for many people uh, in the world. So so I do agree with you that one should not, you know, this, uh, you know, to completely move away from this and take a, yeah, turn around, turn your back on it as a potential. Mm. Um, but as it, you know, in the long term, I think it also needs to be taught a bit of a lesson. And I, I think boycotting the the, the Qatar World Cup uh, will probably 
you know, act as uh, a reminder to uh, to FIFA that look, you know, you did the Russia World Cup where you know people who were you know, homosexual were basically told, be careful if you go to Russia to follow your team and to watch a sport that you love. Um, mm. And now another World Cup has been given to Qatar. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, you know, Qatar's approach is uh, to these kinds of uh, the rights of individuals to uh, to essentially you know, um, exhibit, as it were, um, their love for their partners in public. I don't know if there are any restrictions along those lines. So I think you know, FIFA has to really step into the 21st century uh, and realize that you know, football is a game which unites. So you should give football tournament your biggest product to, you know, cultures which can further unite the game and not divide the game. And I think that recent decisions have been more divisive than unifying. And you know, mm. this is another element I think which we should perhaps consider, um, you know, further down the line. Mm. Um, but yeah, but the, the next issue then is uh, is Navalny and. Um, so you've got a few more more thoughts on uh, Mr. Navalny than than, than I do. Um, I, I, I perhaps approach this from a completely um, alternative um, position. But I mean, do you want to tell, tell me, me? Tell me yours. Tell me yours then first, <laughs> so, to turn it around a little bit. What was your approach when you call it alternative? Okay, the thing that I have is you know we've discussed in the past the dangers of trying to export democracy. Yeah, to export our belief structure onto other countries which perhaps don't really want to have those beliefs. Yeah, so you know, democracy is, a, is an ideal uh, which works uh, in some cases, uh, at least a little bit uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere um, and a little bit in Europe too. Um, but it doesn't necessarily work very well in other countries where perhaps the people in general don't want to have the same form of uh, political system. So you know, my question is, you know, we sit here in, in Germany, in Berlin, you know, you're free to do practically anything you want, say anything you want, more or less, within obviously reason. Um, and you know, we're judging essentially what is happening to, to, to Navalny. He, he was aware of what would happen if he returned to Russia. He he is aware and has always been aware of the strength of, of Putin. Um, so therefore, my question is, should European society, should Europe, should the USA sanction Russia when none of what has happened is actually a surprise, nor is it against the law in Russia? Even though you could say, yes, Putin has changed the constitution to suit himself, but still, that's the law in Russia. Well, regarding the last, to pick up the last thing, um, I have read that uh, all the claims that have been made against him that now led him to be imprisoned uh, on the basis of his not following up with the uh, restrictions imposed upon him, uh, you know, in the aftermath of his last uh, condemnation, of his last uh, of the last decision, because there was some decision made about some criminal course. So I have read that this uh, the alleged uh, infractions are even even 
meeting the standards of Russian law, which probably does not uh, have a high standard of um, protecting detainees' laws and so on, um, this is, has just been politic, politicized. That all the decisions were just, uh, you know, they were just on the paper. There was something made up in, in juridical and the juridical realm. You can by by extend interpretation of a certain word or certain uh phrase in the law you can you can um you can let enter a lot of uh political decisions into it so i think this has clearly been a political decision you cannot tell me that the that the infraction that they and themselves um accuse him of it has been to say, okay, you, by going to Germany and letting yourself treat against the uh, yeah the disease that the poisoning, had, the poisoning <laughs> you have been infecting this and this and this restriction. This is clearly made up, I think. Another thing that that's uh, I think the alternative standpoint or what you call uh, what you said as uh, the alternative way of approaching this topic is that to think, okay, tactically, no one can be surprised. Navalny himself uh, should not pretend to be. I think he's not at all surprised of what has happened. He's uh, faced this and knew that this could and probably would happen. But this doesn't lessen uh, the wrongfulness of a decision, the wrongfulness of a corrupt state, as Russia clearly seems to be, uh, to act uh, uh, along these lines, right? You cannot say it because this is, doesn't come as a surprise, we should not condemn it. We know already how low the standard is in Russia or in China. Why should we condemn anything well, to I condemn? You know, yeah. I just I just feel that you know I'm sitting in this you know, very safe place and I, and I'm throwing out these criticisms of Russia of Qatar of you know these other areas in the world and you know perhaps you know China on occasion or North Korea and so on um, and you know but but I, I have no real understanding of of life in these countries it's so easy for me to say yeah of course free Navalny let him talk let him stand in front mm -hmm. of the Kremlin and shout obscenities at Putin if you know it let him do that all day long it's so easy for me to say that but what I'm trying to do however mm -hmm. look at the, the system in a way that you know we believe in, in in democracy I believe in you know social democracy um, but not everybody else does um, not the whole world does and um, I, I think it's it would be arrogant in the extreme for somebody such as myself who does not live in any kind of danger or danger of persecution uh, to then say to another country, you should not run your country in that way. This is the well, only thing I'm trying thing to is, say. The, yeah, yeah, clear. The thing, your standpoint in this uh, regard is clear. The thing is, as a person who considers uh, himself, as I think, you could, would also at least partly say a citizen of, of the world, right? Yeah. Uh, you would probably always have empathy for um, any state or any, you know, for the citizen that is oppressed by by another state. Another thing now is to say how, what is the degree of oppression? What is the degree of emancipation that we should, as as much as we can, as little citizens from outside, 
try to um, you know support in some way. Um, this this is something that requires, of course, let's say a certain in-depth reading about Russia, taking in some media, uh, also maybe the Russian state media in order to get a clearer image, but also gathering from the fact uh, from these all these protests and demonstrations that have taken place that there seems to be a major uh, upheaval, a major opposition against uh, against Putin. As, as also some Russians, uh, some Russian friends have clearly uh, confirmed to me, who, who who know exactly how, well, let's not say exactly, but who know basically how this this um, this country is run, and this leads us to to the video, uh, to the documentary that Navalny has published. I don't know if you have uh, seen it or given it given it a, a short look. No, but no, I haven't. I have found it. It's it's available online and it's uh, it's free, and I saw the ma a major part of it, and it's quite impressively well done, uh, in-depth um, investigation. I did not double check all the uh, all the proofs that he um, talks about, but it's really well done. And it suggests, you know, corruption and uh, uh, a degree of corruption in which Putin himself is involved. That is, uh, you know, it's unprecedented. And this is why this is also technical, um, tactically a bit what Navalny had thought when going to Russia, knowing that he might be imprisoned at the same time, releasing this documentary to cause some uh you know upheaval in the uh, in the russian population it clearly it clearly shows how things are in russia that this regardless of uh, how much truth is in this documentary okay i think it's well done and it's quite plausible what he says but uh, it clearly shows uh it's a clear sign that there must be something into it that so many russians have taken to the streets after this and so many have watched it. You know how many? I think uh, two weeks after releasing this documentary, it is uh, said to have been watched a hundred million times. Not necessarily by Russians, though, or is it in? Not necessarily it... by Russians, though. Um, I think major uh, in uh, or the majority of people who watch it were Russians. Uh, I, I think I gathered something like this from a from an article. That are read, but there's a clear interest in this in the mm. Russian population. Yeah. Okay. And I, look, I do accept this, and I, I concede the fact that you know my my thought, my my feeling of not coming across as an arrogant person living in safety is not always convincing. Uh, with in the face of you know, this kind of treatment, there is a human rights violation here. Quite clearly, there is a, a freedom of speech issue here. Um, uh, as well as, uh, you know, a, a certain corruption with regards to elections, because obviously by getting rid of one of your main um, opponents, there is a far greater possibility that Putin will be you know, re-elected in any upcoming uh, election that may take place. Yeah. Of, of course, I have to concede these facts. I do say in this, you know, in this case, you are correct. Um, 
Yeah, however, we do also have demonstrations in Germany, we have demonstrations in, in, in the UK, we have demonstrations in, in the USA, violent demonstrations on occasion, uh, or demonstrations which were peaceful, uh, but which were then uh, essentially demonstrations were taken hostage by other right-wing forces to make it seem violent. You know, so all of these different variations occur also in um, democratic countries. So it's it's difficult to simply formulate an opinion based upon um, you know sort of mass not hysteria but discontent or malcontent uh, with regards to any particular government. Yes, yes, sure. That's why I said that it's definitely necessary to take a um, more to articulate exactly what is your criticism and what you would like to support in terms of yeah, Navalny, in terms of the um, the the process of of uh, democratization that is demanded by the Russian population or by any population by the let's if you look in what's the country in Asia now I forgot the name um, where you have the protests running uh, in the streets Myanmar Myanmar. And so, on, of course, you have to read about it to make yourself uh, at least, uh, you know, to have a certain image, to have a certain idea of how this country works and so on. But as soon as you have it, I think you should also be able to uh, dare to uh, to speak about it, to support it in the little that we can from here. And uh, yeah, no, it's, even if it's just, sharing something on the social networks and so on some some news because these things are i mean you talk about it in terms of this is a freedom of speech issue and so on freedom of speech uh yes but freedom i associate with this more what has been happening now with this uh, spanish uh, Spanish rapper, the Catalonian one who's been imprisoned because mm. of insulting the, the crown. The this is mm. the king because, you know, the, there is a clear limit to freedom of speech. It is when you are uh, disrespectful and when you um, yeah curse someone else and so on. Uh, but then again, uh, imprisoning someone is uh, another level and this is politicized. This is for me a uh, freedom of, of speech issue, whereas uh, Navalny and what has happened there, clearly it uh, has to do with it, but it's more about power structures and someone, um, you know, someone uh, fighting against corrupt systems, trying to ch bring about a change. Pol uh, politics are involved in this in a much bigger fashion. So, um, yes, I think this kind of struggle this kind of struggle that uh, Navalny is, uh, is doing, regardless of you of whether you uh, agree with uh, with this guy in, in many points, I, I'm not even sure I would. I don't know his ideas, ideology, and so on too well. But in in the in the degree in which his fight is directed against uh, structural problems that he tries to you know. To reveal to the public in a very well done fashion, because the journalistic part behind it is quite uh, impressive. The team he has and the things he's run, uh, he, they are running are quite impressive in that regard. So this kind of struggle to bring about some structural changes 
I think this is something one should, uh, if it's man, if it's authentic, one should uh, support even from uh, outside and take a, a lesson from it. The lesson that not only in Russia, and this is now where you can, uh, you know, um, you can come over this part of yeah this arrogance that can can be implied when talking about other countries but looking at russia and seeing how blatant corruption there is how uh you know un uh how, how do you say how 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 putin and his fellows seem not even to give a damn about uh, uh about showing it to some degree but this should just serve as, as an example for something that might be that very obvious there, but it's also present here. Mm. We have in Germany now discussions about uh, these days, actually, about corruption on the scale of uh, the parliament, the, the, the federal uh, parliament. Some um, uh, some people in the in the parliament have been um, it has been revealed that they have have taken. Um, they have participated in mask deals when and have profited from the from the um, from the crisis that we're living now and mm. sold a lot of masks have doing have done lobbying and have done a lot of things mostly uh, as as usual right uh, right wing not extreme right but right wing or conservative mm. um, parliamentary uh, members parliament members so this these structures that are present not not only in in countries like Russia with the lower standard, but also now or in our uh, in the so-called raw models of democracy. Yeah, only that I they mean, are hidden. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, this kind of thing uh, has also occurred in the UK. That they are um, the NHS is currently investigating, for example, a company which has been uh, which ha which won a thirty million pound uh, contract uh, for producing certain supplies for the uh, healthcare industry. When before mm -hmm. uh, they had never actually operated within the industry. So um, this kind of the questions do arise, don't they? And uh, usually they they arise in specific part of the political spectrum. So, um, yes, of course, uh, the, unfortunately, corruption exists also in, in areas like uh, the UK, uh, Germany, but also we've seen um, in other parts of, of the European Union too, and the USA, of course. So this is another reason why I, I, I try not to throw stones, because I'm not actually sure exactly mm. you know, how much glass uh, surrounds me. Um, and yeah, this is uh, yeah, definitely something to to take into consideration. But yeah, mm -hmm. the thing the thing is that uh, this, uh, these structures, and so far as they're also present in our countries in the so-called Western democracies, um, they just don't reach the same level of awareness. They are not on our daily perception when you when you are someone politically interested and so on, uh, because because of the fact that. On the other hand, there's this freedom of speech and there is the, a certain standard of living, certain general wealth, even though we have also pro people, people with existential problems, uh, uh, of course. But there's a, there's a general standard of, uh, of wealth and freedom of speech and so on that creates, um, creates the perception that you no, know, generally things are are well done here. And there might be some problems here and here and there. There are um, 
uh, we should change, bring about some changes. But uh, corruption and corruption, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a thin line between corruption as something that is also uh, criminalized, that is also um, where you have to be be held responsible uh, and, and maybe go to prison. There's a thin line between this and lobbyism that is unregulated, that is uh, interests of uh, of groups and so on that are articulated in a way that is uh, not obvious to the public, not obvious to anyone interested in democratizing. So this 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 line to that trespasses the when you go to corruption is not so often reached, not at least in the perception of. Uh, in, uh, of the general public right and mm -hmm. i find it it's interesting to see now that this topic is i think you know in the crisis in all this uh, this is a good thing about covid and everything's happening there's much bigger i feel it maybe it's because we're in a bubble in berlin people are more politicized than in other uh, cities in germany for instance but in general there is more interest in politics be just because of the sheer fact that you want to uh, know what the hell are going, the next rules are going to be that you have to follow politics in this regard, right? And uh, I see a potential there because I see also uh, that there is a claim, there's a demand for to take more part in it. Mm. You know, two two days. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 I was just going to agree with you that there there is perhaps a great emphasis on participation. Um, I mean, participation itself is one of the main tenets of democracy. You know, uh, representation, rule of law, uh, majority. You know, de decision making, and so on. So, you know, to participate, to engage, to be interested mm. in politics, it's almost like a requirement uh, of of democracy. If indeed you you, you believe democracy to be the real way forward. And in fact, for democracy to be you know, completely, shall we say, functional, you need to have a demanding public. Mm. If, if the public you know, refuses to demand you know, nothing but the best from its leaders, then the leaders are naturally going to drift into uh, you know, situations which are beneficial to them without any consideration for general society. So, you know, mm. I, I would actually hazard to guess that uh, political institutions have become perhaps more corrupt over time, or at least more self-serving than necessarily mm. corrupt, because of the general malaise or apathy uh, of, 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 of the public. We are no longer demanding enough. Yes, and I would, I would like to to relate it somehow to 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 the topic let's say that we started uh in our first or at least in our second talk the the general strife historic strife uh, uh for more democracy because um what to pick up on what you just said some 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 apathy some you know lack of interest in politics i i i see the same that's why i see um why I, why I say I see a potential for change because I see that there has actually been a change in regards to the with regards to the uh, to the interest people take to the to the to the degree to which they want to engage at least now for now in um, yeah, informing themselves about what's happening going on in the political sphere right mm. so 
with regards to the last decades, you could say, okay, the representative democracy as uh, as developed after Second World War, let's uh, take this point in time, has had momentum, has had his has created its wealth, especially in the 80s and 90s and so on. And until the financial crisis, they had at least from my environment, and I think I can say this a bit about in general about Germany at least, there hasn't been this particular strong interest in politics as there might have been still in the 60s and 70s uh, when there was much more going on the scene. So th there was an apathy and there was a uh, maybe, how would you say, um, people were just lured, you know, they were lulled by uh, by consumerism, by the standard that had uh, of wealth that had been created, and well, more or less, more or less uh, content they seemed on the surface. Okay, and I think now the potential is, and what I'm seeing, observing now is that, okay, now people are trying to uh, get better informed about what is happening but of course in the in, on, in an idealistic sense this will not be enough this is just a step to ask for to be informed to will be properly informed and to see how the structures work how decisions are taken and then maybe ideally uh to to you know to get engaged also actively to not see 20 people as Two days ago, I thought about it, you know, two days ago, 20 people met in Germany to decide which rules to take. Mm -hmm. Rules that were going to be valid and will be valid for 80 million people. You can say, yeah, but of, at least this, you know, because in the process running up to this, in the preface of this discussion of these 20 people, a lot of interests and so on have been articulated to them. They uh, take it into account and then they take into account the regional things, the economy here, the Bavaria takes more into account this and and so on. There's some degree of participation, but the, in the end, 20 people decide. And this is a, this is still a lack of democracy, don't you mm. think? Yeah, I think there. I mean, you do mention representative democracy. So you know, there were elections a certain number four years ago, I think, um, and so these people were elected, uh, and the, the election uh, this year, September, will be um, you know the best opinion poll uh, indicator of satisfaction with you know regards to the government for how well mm -hmm. they performed. So yeah, I mean th these. Uh, criticism shall we say are ongoing i understand what you you mean um but it also brings us on to this this last topic and um when you say that 20 people made the decision for 80 million people um the the, the european commission has uh, is proposing a policy which will influence the lives of 500 million people um this uh, digital green pass mm. um and yeah i i put it to you um, do you think this is an additional layer of privilege? Well, um, well, as I said, this is a thing that I've just uh, recently come across, the idea of the digital past, but it goes uh, in line with a discussion that has been going on here for a while now, since we all, uh, since we know that uh, vaccination 
might and will hopefully bring about more freedom for all of us, right? That in the process leading up to the point in which we all can be uh, called immune, immunalized, immune, immune to yeah. the uh, to <laughs> to Corona, that there will be a, co- a, a period, of course, in, in which some people that will have been vaccinated and so on, and. Um, and as soon as we know that they are not uh, carriers or potential carriers of the virus, um, nonetheless, uh, notwithstanding their um, their their uh, their vaccination, of course the topic comes up: should they, um, you know, should they have some privileges? Should they have more liberties? And in this line goes uh, the discussion, the the policy proposal by the Commission now to allow for a certain degree of traveling for those who who can prove, okay, I've been vaccinated or I've had it, I'm uh, immune, I've had tests and so on. How how do you see this? Yeah, I'm I'm uncertain because I I also want to reach a situation where everybody can travel. I'm not the I'm not the biggest traveler in Europe, by the way. So for me, if I have to stay another two years only in Germany, um, then, you know, I will accept that. I mean, Germany is big enough for me to travel around anyway. You know, Um, but there are luckily, I suppose, for the tourism industry, um, millions and millions of people who are nothing like me at all. And they want to travel. They want to see the world. um, and, And it's not for me to judge that choice. Um, however, what I would say is that I, I, my concern is not for the people who will be vaccinated. And by the way, if I'm offered the vaccine, I will take it. Um, and if they say to me, all right, now you have access to this digital pass, uh, you know, please download it or get the app or whatever, I will do so. However, I do believe that there are some people with legitimate concerns um, so this would include people who are allergic mm-hmm. to the, any vaccine. This would include mm-hmm. pregnant women who uh, have been advised perhaps it's not best for them to take the vaccine. Um, and there are those who have uh, genuine political concerns, you know, with regards to the vaccine. I, I don't want mm-hmm. to bel- belittle uh, the opinions mm-hmm. of these other people because I think, you know, if you are asking somebody to inject something into their body, it is mm-hmm. in many ways, um, I think, incumbent upon those medical authorities to comp- explain exactly what it is they are injecting. So, exactly. you know, I we've had this recent issue with AstraZeneca and uh, the government in Germany has said, no, it's OK now to to inject uh, or to vaccinate mm-hmm. people over 65. OK, fine. Um, but why was there an initial concern? Was it simply because the case study group was not big enough? You know, is there something else that should be considered? You know, I mean, there are these crazy theories about Bill Gates and I don't know what and microchips. I don't buy into any of that. However, um, you know, if people have a genuine concern, then put it out there. You know, let's see what the problem is. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, I think. <laughs> I haven't taken a final stand in in this because it's really a sensitive topic. Because, of course, um, the fact that something like a digital green pass or anything uh, the like could be implemented, could could also bring about some new degree of freedom, uh, is is positive for itself. The thing is that it can work as a... uh, 
de facto vaccination um, obligation, which should never be, um, yeah, should never be a kind of policy to pursue because of the things you said, right? It's a sensitive thing to put something into your body. And on top of this is that the process of developing this uh, vaccine that usually used to take uh, up to 10 years has been reduced to three months or four months or six months. I don't know exactly how long they took. And uh, I think it's quite quite understandable that people have a certain skepticism and some distrust in this, more so when vaccinations in the past used to be uh, used to put into your body a bit of the uh, disease itself, right, of the mm. virus itself. Now it mm. works in a different way, but no one really gets, uh, or still I don't get it at least, uh, how this RNA thing works exactly and what the risk may. I, I think it's a question of trust, the trust that you should have, or hopefully people uh, can develop in, in these in the institutions that uh, put their stamp on it and say this is good and so on. Um, it's a question of, of uh, trust and you cannot force people to trust. You cannot do it uh, by, by, you know, you cannot force them and you ca you have to convince them in some way. You have to convince on an individual level uh, talking uh, about these issues, talking, put, uh, saying this, uh, this has proven in England they have, or in Israel, so many people have been vaccinated. It seems to be, there don't seem, doesn't seem to be a major problem involved in this and so on. This is the way uh, one can discuss about it and hopefully convince people. But the thing is, pr the privilege uh, uh, discussion is, is complicated, right? Mm. Because mm. on the one hand, I, I, I took this stand in this, in this, uh, on this topic. Think about, you know, a, little, a smaller community or your family, your uh, some friends or a, or a village of 50 or 100 people and you have a limited number of uh, vaccines available now and and there has to be an order and priority. I think the priority that is being implemented, established in the different countries all have their logic and all seem to follow a clear and human approach. You know, first the elder ones, the, the more the risk patients and so on. But then coming back to this example, this village, let's say, of 100 people. And if I know everyone and so on, and there is a there's an order uh, of, of how vaccinations are being implemented and um, the 10 first people to get it. Now uh, we know they are immune and let's uh, suppose we know they do not pass on this, uh, uh, this, this disease. Why the hell should I not wish for them to have more freedom uh, by being able to go to a cafe, to a bar only because I uh, haven't been vaccinated. It shouldn't, isn't it be a more human approach to say, okay, I step back, I say, I'm the last one to take it, I'm still young and healthy and so on. And why in the meantime, in the period, be it months or weeks, uh, should they not, um, you know, mm. have these privileges? Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, 
privilege in itself indicates people who have an unfair advantage, you know, and and I think yeah, in this question, it's and in this case, it's a sort of double edged sword because uh, privilege suggests that uh, you know, the, the rich and wonderful are, are all have access to uh, the vaccines, whereas uh, the people who are poor don't. And I, I don't see that as being the case at the moment, at least on a country by country basis. Yes. Yeah. However, on uh, from the basis of people living in Europe, I, I don't see that as being privilege based. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to introduce the, the question was that um, you know, should people see the fact that if they themselves choose not to have a vaccine, that they should then take a step back and not risk mm-hmm. infecting those who have? Mm-hmm. This is the this is the major problem, the sensitive topic involved. Because if everyone was willing to to take the vaccine and it was just a matter of time and order of things, prioritizing and so on, then I think it would be it would be easier to you know to convince people of say, uh, and say, look, uh, let's let's have them enjoy these people who are have been uh, who who have a stronger risk of developing major uh, diseases and so on, enjoy their lives uh, until we all get vaccinated. But the thing is, if there are people who, um, yes, who refuse vaccination because maybe they fear it, maybe they just don't trust it and so on, how can, uh, yeah, in all this process, how how can we deal uh, deal with the with the question of privileges and going to bar cinemas and traveling at best uh, for those people. This is something where I still find it hard to have a certain opinion. Mm. I, I think for this reason, we need to see the uh, the proposal. We need to see the details uh, that are contained within it. We need to see what this means for people who are pregnant, for who are who are allergic to vaccinations. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we don't suddenly create um, a sort of culture of exclusivity. So the ones who have the vaccine and the ones who don't, uh, because then you, then you start to you know move in the direction of exclusivity, privilege. Uh, and and thereafter, there are some other sort of uncomfortable over, uh, undertones uh, of um, of managing uh, and separating society, and and that could be dangerous. Yes, and with regards to this uh, specific proposal uh, put on the table by the Commission now, it clearly is also reaction to um, to the demands of those countries. Who are uh, which are more in need of, uh, of of tourists and and people who, who travel. Austria has been lobbying for this. Of course, Spain and Greece. Um, mm, so this is also to be taken into account, right? This is uh, if I would I would see it in this way: if there are tourists who that are desperately in need of going to uh, on vacation and uh, they want to go to Spain, Italy or to Turkey, Greece, wherever, um, then, then this is also something that, that can help those economies and people who are in desperate need of it, right? Mm. And I personally would take the standpoint that, uh, yes, it should, it should be made possible in some way, only, as you said, one should definitely look at the details and how 
yeah, how the proposal has been written and um, what exceptions may have been. Yeah, if, the, if a man who's been vaccinated wants to go with his wife, his wife is pregnant, doesn't want to get vaccinated, that maybe this uh, his wife can also come as an exception. I don't know uh, about the details, but this is, in fact, mm. very important to take a look into, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right, Alvaro, we've uh, we've already pushed beyond the one hour mark. I mean, okay, it's not exactly <laughs> a, a restriction we have to follow, but um, yeah, I, I think people tend to uh, you know split up their uh, podcasts into you know, chunks yes. which are more easily digestible. Uh, so okay, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But I'm pretty sure we'll come back and discuss some of these other points again in the future. Um, and yeah, you know, please continue to. to press me for for uh, um, you know, an answer for some of these things because sometimes I forget to do that and um, <laughs> w- w- one of the reasons why is because I actually want to use these podcasts also as a way of monitoring the consistency of my arguments you know um, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, to have it on record would therefore mean that I can't you know run around the situation if I've said I believe in this and then two weeks later I say oh but I believe in this too uh, and they are mutually exclusive uh, then I need to reassess some of my ideas so uh, please keep pushing and uh, I will do my best to respond as well um, yeah, I, shall, I shall try to yes yeah, keep me honest, man. Keep me honest. Um, thank you, Alvaro. Um, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk. I'm looking forward to when uh, you and I both have our green passes and we can go for a nice beer together. Um, and really that should cool. be something that'll be quite entertaining. Um, but yeah, I, I will uh, in, yeah, endeavour to put this uh, podcast up uh, today, and then uh, yeah, we'll uh, yeah, we'll speak again very soon. Hopefully, it's always a pleasure. Time passes really fast. This hour almost has passed so fast now. And it's yeah, crazy. I'm happy to. I'm happy if I can also um, put some questions to you, um, as as I've tried to do. But you know, to get in, to change the position of the moderator and and yeah, yeah. Uh, interviewee. Yeah, I'm a bit slippery in that case because I always turn it back around to you. But that, that's not because I'm trying to avoid voicing an opinion. It's just uh, interesting for me to hear what you have to say. But uh, yes, keep trying. Yeah, don't give up. <laughs> Great, yeah. Michelle. All the best, my friend. All the best. Talk to you soon. Ciao. Bye.